I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. I'm joined today by Aaron Wolf. So Aaron Wolf is um, a programmer. He was active during the dot-com bubble, did some stuff with, uh, what is it, brought a company to Yahoo um, or, or, or got acquired by Yahoo or something? Yeah, I launched a, 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 a internet gaming destination, a social internet gaming destination as a grad student that Yahoo wanted to make part of Yahoo. So they... they uh, they twisted my arm until I uh, dropped out. Right, and and then uh, you were briefly involved in WhatsApp. Right, I, I was a seed investor for WhatsApp and was even uh, programming a bit for a couple of months there. Right, but but overall, you've you've kind of you've done a lot of programming over the years, um, and your most recent project now is this thing called Futo, which you've settled on as sort of a project to take on this problem of sort of centralization and. Um, I don't know. There's something. There's something awful about the tech ecosystem, and and you think you've got an analysis and, and an approach to take that on. So I'd love to hear more about that. Let's let's launch into that, and and um, we can figure this out. Now, this is obviously something I've been thinking about a lot recently. I've been having some some Twitter threads about it. I've been running some book clubs about it. I've been doing some little side projects. Um, I'm very interested in this topic of basically what's gone wrong with tech. So I'd love to hear your analysis. Um, what you think can be done about it, what you're doing about it, and then we can go from there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to claim to have any, like, you know, a silver bullet answer that nobody's thought of. Um, we're just trying to do what we can to to solve kind of the problem that I, you know, the things that have frustrated me about um, big tech probably, you know, since at least, you know, the mid-aughts, um, but maybe even earlier, that you know the, the increasing centralization. Um, as a programmer, it's um, become very. You know, programmers actually got censored first. You know, you hear a lot about Alex Jones getting censored right. or whatever. Programmers have to be approved by the app stores now, and that's something that happened in 2010. Right. Um, so, you know, I was in. Uh, you know, I've always been trying to. You know, I lived in Silicon Valley for 18 years up until late 2015. Um, always wanted to kind of find other people who wanted to kind of go after this in a more anti-establishment fashion. I'm not really mm -hmm. the best. Uh, I'm very much a computer nerd who doesn't socialize well. So, you know, I never, never really found people to work on this until recently. Um, you know, and now trying to create the FUTA organization. 18 years in Silicon Valley, you know, and just kind of investing in entities that annoy me um i've become you know I, I have a lot of money to spend on this problem like hopefully we can find ways to spend it intelligently and it actually has some impact um you know kind of the so oh, what's, what's your approach with fudo what's what do you think what do you see as like the the key aspect of the problem that seems attackable to you and well and what can you, you know i mean to me the key, i mean i kind of wanted to say like like the key, 
I kind of say the key problem is a kind of a little philosophical. It is we want we want our computers to be our tools. That's what they they were built to be our tools. And honestly, this started with Yahoo is when they, people started making free software and then giving it to people to manipulate their behavior. And so at that point, the the computer's the company's tool at that point. Like, you know, the phone in your pocket is in many ways, you know, Google's tool to manipulate your behavior. Right. Um, you the, can get the, a very cheap Android phone that's subsidized, you know, yeah, because the, they collect data. The computer used to be this this amazing tool, this artistic medium, maybe a portal into into sort of your weird online friends. And now it feels like kind of this telescreen, right? It's monitoring your life. It's telling you what to do. It's con it, it's it's on the other end of the computer is this faceless Borg in Silicon Valley trying to control your life. And this is something that's really happened, you know, in an accelerating way over the last twenty years. Um, right. So you know, I mean the. The, you know, to solve this problem, you know, and what that's what Futo is trying to solve, you might just say, well, Richard Stallman was right, and like, right. well, then, you know, why hasn't, why hasn't um, open source solved this problem? There should be, you know, hundreds of millions of programmers potentially, right, who who can fix this problem with open source software. Mm -hmm. um, so. You know, what's does Futo have a unique approach here? It really doesn't. It's more just like diving into the problem and adding our, you know, our weight and trying trying to look at things seriously, um, trying to make investments that you know that um, that chip away at kind of any sort of you know power advantage that mm -hmm. you know the oligopoly has. Um, and we're I would say we're still very early. I mean, we're we're, we're just we're just launching the grant program we have now. Mm -hmm. um, and we're we're kind of doing a broad survey of everything that exists, trying to figure out why you know why it hasn't worked. Like a great example is um, you know communications tools, right? I mean, I was mm -hmm. obviously involved with WhatsApp. Um, so you kind of look at what went wrong with WhatsApp. Well, they sold out, right? They so sold to Facebook, uh, yeah, right. So a, a big a big part of what we're doing is trying trying to find people who won't sell out, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the biggest problems, uh, you know, that we've sort of revisited many times, not not so much in a, in a very focused way on Palladium, but it's definitely something we notice, we occasionally comment on that, that, you know, the people's motivations are very much kind of malleable by by these conventional uh, sort of conventional exits. Um, the, the possibility of conventional exits, it's like, oh, well, if, if line can go up, then you know, maybe I don't have to be friends with you anymore. Maybe I don't have to like stick to my ideals anymore. Like I'm just going to make line go up. And, and there's sort of this, um, it's very rare to find people who are so sincerely dedicated to their mission that, that they won't sell. Um, and, and the interesting thing that I found interesting is that when you do get someone like that and they don't sell, you know, a good, a good amount of the time, they end up being someone like Mark Zuckerberg, right? Mark Zuckerberg didn't sell. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's that's kind of, you know, what, one of the things I've noticed is that the, the there's great programmers in Silicon Valley, um, and certainly Mark Zuckerberg's a decent programmer, but what really distinguishes, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg's of the world from the rest is the desire to control. Um, that's why they don't sell out is because they don't want to control. Or sorry, they do because they do want to control. Right, right. right. Um, 
Yeah, and that, so, that can be a good thing and a bad thing, right? It's like they want to control the project, but also, you know, Facebook is this incredibly controlling global entity now. Yeah, and I guess where I depart from the, from them is, you know, I I don't like, I'm kind of libertarian. I don't like controlling other people. Uh -huh. um, and there's a kind of maybe also elitism, right? They, they feel like they, you know... It, things will be too chaotic if we just let people make their own decisions they'll be dumb like i'm so much smarter than them and like it's much yeah. better you know it's, it's just the, the standard kind of elitist asset yeah so this elitist is, mindset th this is something you see um that's that's really interesting about silicon valley is the, is the degree of elitism in the tech world it's you know there, there's sort of this implicit belief like or I mean, actually, no, it's explicit. It's quite explicit that, you know, the user is grandma, right? You have to treat the user like grandma, uh, which is to say we're going to treat the user like kind of a senile person who doesn't really know what's going on. Um, right. You know, it has to be super easy and intuitive for them. It has to remember everything for them. Uh, they don't they should never have to think about like composing two pieces of functionality. They, they shouldn't even be allowed to compose two functionality, two pieces of functionality, like anything, anything that gets close to to Turing completeness, or, you know, like a general purpose computation, like the file system or the command line. We can't have them doing that. They're, they're too dumb. They're, they might wreck something. Um, and and, you know, maybe we need to control their political opinions while we're at it. We need to control, you know, like increasingly many aspects of their lives. And and it's all justified because, oh, well, if you don't do this, then it won't be accessible to everybody. And and so there's this interesting way that this like egalitarian kind of compassionate veneer is is this ideology of this incredibly elitist centralizing and controlling uh, managerial structure. And so I found that very interesting. And that's, that's like this striking aspect in in Silicon Valley's uh, ideology right now. Yeah, right. I mean, it's even worse than that. So they'll appeal to the grandmother, right? But they want to make more people more like the grandmother who can't do anything for themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by, by even... treating the user by treating the user like grandma, they 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 dumb it down. They make yeah. it impossible to be anything more. Like, I mean, a good example is um, Google Maps. You know, Google Maps works right. really well if you're just like having Google Maps to tell you or your Google navigation. It works so much better if you're just tell me where to go. Like if you actually just want to look at a map and kind of absorb the information on the map and make your own decisions, Google is not good. Google Maps is not good for that. It's not optimized for that process at all. So, you you know, right. I actually used uh, Google navigation for the first time uh, a, few, a couple of days ago. And I, I was, I didn't even know which way was north when I got out of the car. I was just like, oh, I'm home. I, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I don't even know which way is north. Like it, it right. made me dumber. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I've I've definitely gotten that sense driving with with Google Maps, where it's like it it often like you know it'll tell you what the next turn is you have to make, but it won't tell you what road you have to get on or what direction you have to go or or any of the sort of higher level information that could allow you to confidently respond to changing circumstances yourself. You just have to rely on oh the thing is going to recalculate if I make the wrong turn, and uh, yeah, so it's this very this this experience of having your agency stripped away. And like this isn't this isn't a complaint that's limited to one app, right? This is this is something that's been happening across the entire industry of computing. Um, you the the major sort of experience of computing in the last 40 years. I mean, Stallman was kind of 
early, but uh, I, I think it's sort of since since basically maybe not forty years, maybe like thirty years. But I, people were complaining about it before that. But but there was, you know, since the nineties, there's been this sort of userization or or the the like uh, mass marketing aspect of of computing, and it's like increasingly. Uh, pitched to the masses and removing all the like high agency functionality that that you know the masses either can't be allowed to have or or aren't smart enough to use or you know maybe those concepts are not actually all that well distinguished within within the ideology that's driving this um and and this so the experience overall is that your agency is getting stripped away the the kind of the the centralized tech oligarchy or oligopoly um, these big companies increasingly have more and more of the leverage in the situation and and so it's it's in every app it's not just in one app yeah it's pervasive and it's it's as a programmer it's it's even worse um, or maybe it's not it's 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 some as a programmer um, you know in 2014 I was helping my friends start this company using Android's development tools um, very much as a like trying to make you like put every single thing that that Google wants to do to track you into the app. Like if, right. if you want, and all, you know, all you want to do is like I don't know, you know much about programming. Like I tried to put notifications into the app. Um, right. Okay, all of a sudden I've got twenty megabytes of code in the app that's doing all this <laughs> stuff that I don't Dude, I don't want. Yeah. And so okay, I spend time trying to just put the notifications in the app because I don't you know I don't even want our I didn't even want our users to have to spend an extra 10 seconds downloading the app or whatever, right? So, okay, so I can do that work. And next time Android Studio is updated, I have to do all that work again. Um, right. So that's when I got just kind of fed up myself and and, uh, and was like, okay, like, I, I'm just going to, as a programmer, I decided I was going to uh, never program with any of these systems ever again in my life. Right. Yeah, it's, so it's interesting seeing it from the programmer's side. So an analysis that I've taken recently, I mean, I'm, I've dabbled in programming. I taught myself computer science um, while I was going to school for mechanical engineering. Um, I, I do consider myself to have a computer science education, but, but I've not really done a lot of programming, more, more just like amateur dabbling. But my analysis from that perspective it has been... Um, you know, there's there's very much removing the amateurness of programming from the system. This is, this is the big trend that's been happening. Like you, you know, back in the Unix days, um, it's the 1970s. Anyone who can even touch a computer is expected to be able to run a command line, and and if you can run a command line, you are programming. You can program like if you can run a command line and, and open a text file, you're programming because you just put commands in a text file and run it, right? And and then you're, you're you're programming. It's easy. It's 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 there. It's it's so fluently just the user interface, and it's it's like, and and I mean this. I, I mean amateur in the sense that like whatever you're trying to use the computer for, you're kind of able to use programming to do that, even if you're not sort of building some programming system. Uh, or, or you're, you're not programming some big software system. You're just you're just using the computer, and so that that's kind of the the pillar of amateur, um, or at least a very primitive version of of sort of amateur focused computing. And then the the trend over time has been 
that goes away. We hide the command line. We have this graphical thing. The graphical thing isn't some new and more powerful shell for the computer. It's, it's a less powerful thing that just looks better and is more convenient for these, these sort of like appliance-like tasks where, uh, the, you know, the amateur is, is, doesn't need that much agency. We're going to give them less agency. And, and so one way to analyze this is you have professional programmers or the organizations that are building the software basically optimizing things to be good for themselves. They're, it's like, oh, well, it's great for you know, the, the people building the software. They get all these great tool chains. They get all, these, you know, all this power over how the thing works. They get fine-grained control over how it looks, so they're able to make it look really nice. They're able to bring in a whole lot of more users. Um, but, but the sort of power user, the amateur power user, is kind of left out in the cold. And so I've sort of analyzed it as this... Um, a, a little bit of a of a class tension between the amateur power user and the professional programmer, but the interesting thing that you're bringing into this is that it's also the professional programmers that are getting screwed, um, at least when they're not at at these giant companies that are controlling all this stuff, um, and and so I find that interesting. I, I, I'm curious what you make of of my analysis of of kind of this. Uh, tension between the sort of amateur power user and the the professional programmer, and then also just more. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts and experience in in uh, what it looks like kind of on the inside within these tech organizations. Um, the relative, the sort of power landscape, the the power dynamics there between programmers, managers, uh, between the big companies and small companies, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Okay. Well, that's. Uh, I don't have the best short-term memory, so I'll, I'll just. Uh, you might have to ask me that second part again. Um, yeah. No problem. But um, you know, in terms of what you were talking about with um, you know amateur versus professional programmers, I mean, I, even within that, that's you know, there's tons of tons of uh, ground to cover because you know, what what are you programming? Um, right. You know, one uh, one of the if you want to look at Linux developers versus Android developers, right? Trying people trying to make uh, the you know there was a there's there has been and continues to be a concerted effort to make Linux work well on mobile devices um, by amateurs or by open source you know contributors. Um, right, as opposed to just Android. Right. Like Android is technically Linux, but right. it's not Linux in the sense that you can run a Linux distribution yeah. on your phone. It, it, there's so much nuance in how Android is and isn't Linux. Um, but if we just take iOS as an example of um, iOS, iOS versus, let's, let's talk about iOS versus uh, Linux mobile operating system. So iOS has, uh -huh. you know, what, the developers working at Apple have all the information they need to program the computer at the lowest level, right? The GPU, right. the you know, the, the power, like power controls, the the uh, you know, everything about the chip is there, or they can call somebody to get that information to make it work well to have bugs fixed, whatever they probably have, you know, say say they're using. I don't know what the first iPhones got their source their 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 uh, CPUs. I mean, they were ARM, but I forget which. Um, which who made the board, but anyway, whoever was doing that, say it was Qualcomm, or uh, you know, they mm -hmm. have a direct line of communications to the people at Qualcomm. Linux developers don't have that. Right. They have to reverse engineer things a lot yeah. of the time. Um, 
you know, there's people right now trying to reverse engineer the M1 chip, trying to figure out, you know, mm -hmm. now that now that Apple has brought yeah, that that's the exactly. new Apple so Silicon. the M1, the new Apple Silicon from, you know, that that's in all the power books now um, is made made by Apple now. So obviously, the people working at Apple yeah. on iOS are going to be able to program that way better than Linux developers who are just like randomly trying things and seeing if they if they can get it to work or not. So, right, because because all those all the documentation right. is proprietary. Basically. Right. So it's a huge advantage for um, for the the big companies. Uh -huh. um, if you look at kind of higher level apps, you know, it's, yeah, it's been this way. Even even with higher level apps, you have. And this was what Microsoft got sued for with Internet Explorer, right? Where they had the secret APIs or whatever, and they were able to integrate it with the operating system. Or I thought that was a little dubious, but um, they certainly there was a lot of complaints that Microsoft engineers had the ability to make the higher level apps better just by having access to the operating system. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure even how necessary that was, right? Because like just the fact that they bundle it is is enough right they they bundle it internet explorer is the default right that was like, kind of a marketing thing there's so many advantages yeah. here right across across you know the right board. so we have, we have this um, we have basically this very very much like a structural uh tendency towards centralization then because you get so many gains from being the organization that controls more of the parts right it's it's definitely a um and it's it's a natural monopoly in many ways. Uh -huh. So um, it's it's not it's not especially with intellectually property law uh, enforced the way it is that makes it even more. I mean, you could say the intellectual property law is not natural, but w you know that it makes it the economies of scale and everything make it much easier mm -hmm. for these uh, these companies to get big and powerful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just want to point out like Apple also has worse than Microsoft. They have APIs. They, they don't even allow developers to do things that they're allowed to do on their apps. Right. Um, so it's pretty like, um, you know, if you want to get into really geeky details, um, you can allocate executable memory if you're doing an Apple really? um, app, which means that Safari can do just-in-time compilation for JavaScript. But no one else can. But no one else can. Yep. Yeah. So the so the Firefox browser will not run JavaScript. Yeah, and this quickly. is this is related to um, Apple doesn't allow any programming tools on on the on the phone. Like they partially that's that that just in time compilation issue, but it's also or I, this is what I've heard. I might, I may be okay. wrong, but but I apparently like you're not allowed to have programming apps and so on in the App Store. Um, well, I wouldn't be surprised. Do. I mean, yeah, they absolutely are. They, look, they're changing their guidelines all the time too. So right. there's that so kind that, of. That could have been at some time in the past. You know, there's there's certainly a a very tepid tepid behavior from app developers because they don't want to um, do anything that might upset Apple, and they're not quite sure what will upset Apple, right? Because Apple might have got upset a year ago, but they won't get upset now. But they're still not going to do it because Apple might get upset, and then it's a huge problem for their business mm -hmm. if they uh, if they do it. Yeah, I mean, so it seems it seems like the inevitable tendency in all this. I mean, first of all, there's just this centralization kind of into these big big tech oligarch companies, um, but. But even like that, that has this distorting effect on the entire experience of computing, right? It's is that this thing is not under your control. You can't program it yourself. You you can 
it's not really serving your interests. You're just kind of totally at the mercy of this, um, you know, like like the in in the computing future, it's like Apple is the state and and the state is God in the sense that it can like control reality down to this low level and like only the things that it wants you to do um, can be done. Or it's not God; it's some kind of demiurge, right? It's some twisted, twisted, uh, unnatural. Uh, metaphysical tyrant is like kind of the experience of uh, of the user now in, in, with respect to this stuff. You can't the, you're 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 very much tracked into this narrow narrow lane. And then you know the the metaverse. I've said the metaverse is kind of like the end point of this, right? It's you're you're in this totally concocted experience. There's nothing natural or or real about it. You're not even interacting with the reality of the computer. Um, it's entirely this this managed experience that's been that's been pulled over you, um, and and basically it has all the structural power. It can get inside your your sort of rational decision loop. It can it can bombard you with all kinds of um, flashy, addicting things, and 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 you know you're totally at the mercy of this thing. And so this is this is the natural tendency of computing right now. That's where it's going. And, and so it's like this incredibly important mission. I mean, I think it's this incredibly important mission not to go there. I think that doesn't work. It doesn't, it's not going to be a good society. Um, and and maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit more about what's wrong with that. But, but then there's the, this question of like, okay, well, if we don't want to go there, where else can we go and how do we do anything different? Um, and, and so it sounds like these are the problems you're really trying to solve. Uh, or at least trying to contribute to with with your program, um, yeah. I mean, it, this seems like this this very important question, right? It's like, what is wrong with this world that we're creating? Uh, like, what 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 kind of society is it creating, and what's wrong with that? And and how do we not do that? How can we do something different? I'd be here, curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, to I mean, uh, the obvious thing these days. I mean, I kind of like to look at things in terms of you know microeconomics. What's yeah. you know what's creating wealth and what's what policies create wealth and what policies destroy wealth. What's kind of the clear thing that's happened wrong? You know, we used to complain about uh, DRM on ink for yeah. your printer, which okay, fine, yeah, I, it's an inefficient market because you know I'm I'm paying twice as much for ink as I should have. But I mean, it's gotten the censorship in the last couple of years has just—it's so far beyond crazy. That. Yeah, it's so far beyond that. So, you know, that's clearly you know the biggest problem. Yeah, with, well, all, with all this. The interesting thing about the DRM, so the, the DRM stands for Digital Rights Management. It's this this way in which kind of media and software creators can prevent you from copying uh, their stuff and sharing it with your friends or something. But the interesting background assumption in that whole debate is that you control your computer, um, and and you ought to be able to, you ought to be able to control your computer, um, or or you do in fact control your computer. And the problem is to find ways to prevent the user from doing this very natural thing on a computer, which is copy data. You know, computers work by copying data. You're copying data all day, every day. Like everything, like the way the computer works inside is just copying data around um, most of the time. And and then you do calculations on it and so on. But it's like copying data is this, this incredibly basic notion in computing. 
Um, and so the, the idea that like you could have a system where you can't copy the data is like, that's insane. Um, but it, at least within the sort of traditional frame of how we think about computing. But now it's like, it's, it's almost sort of that, that discussion has kind of become obsolete because, well, you don't control your computer. You, like, you don't get to copy the data. The, the sort of security model um, for the computer has gone from being about preventing the computer from being taken over by hostile entities from the other side of the internet to preventing the user from having control over the computer. And, and, and DRM was, was just this very initial piece of that. And now it's, it's almost like the, the user interface is also a, a security firewall. Definitely. And, and you know, I, I, I always like to say that you know, any, you know, DRM is something that um, companies like Disney are always trying to um, push on us. And they say that they're losing yeah. billions of dollars because of um, piracy or whatever. Um, but the problem is, uh, as a technology, from a as from a from a technology standpoint, anything that Disney can use to stop you from, uh, you know, copying your 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 movie, whatever, um, it can also be used for censorship. So we have to, you know, we have to, uh, yeah, realize that. Well, not not just censorship. That yeah. as a public policy stand, you know, as a public policy. Um, position we need to really fight again they're going to keep pushing for more and more of this um, and we really have to realize they're pushing for systems that make it easier for censorship to occur um, and where there is like real i mean we have our kind of soft censorship now in the united states china loves you know everything that you know we implement for drm they love it yeah yeah, I mean, we've we've sort of commented in the past that the 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 thing that's happening in China right now, which everyone sort of regards as as being this scary thing, well, that's just the same thing that's happening in the West with like slightly less obfuscation. Um, but the the thing about censorship and DRM, it's it's not just censorship. It's not just that it can be used to stop you from saying anything. It's it's that it's to even get to that level at all requires this incredible shift in the nature of computing from being the computer is a tool to the computer is like an outpost of the state or something. It, I, I don't even know how to describe right. what the computer has become. I mean, it's the it's the picture of a uh, big brother right. on the it's, wall from it's 1984. The it's the telescreen. It's the telescreen. I mean, the yeah. telescreen is actually you know 1984 is so overused. It's so overused in political commentary. It is, but but the I telescreen mean, is really kind of what the computer is right now. It's like it shows you stuff. You can do things with it, but it's definitely monitoring you, right? And and like you don't want to do anything that's a little bit off the reservation. And so I I, I mean, and then the other thing that that comes to light or if you think about this and, and from what you're saying is like well it's not just the computing industry right it's it's actually the whole kind of political system is going towards this direction of of total unaccountability 
like totalization and unaccountability. It's, it's, it's going to have total control over every aspect of your life, total surveillance, total, you know, it can dictate uh, everything from, from about, about what you're doing. And, and where it doesn't directly dictate, it just removes your ability to have any free agency and then gives you these sort of uh, these defaults and says, oh, well, if you don't like it, you can kind of like build your own whatever alternative. But, you know, all the tools for actually doing that are being systematically uh, removed. But uh, so, so this totalizing aspect in, in our society, I think it's, it's not limited to computation. It's the whole thing. But I think in some way it is centered on the computation. And... And so, like, this is why I've sort of become interested in it recently is, is that there's, there's a way w- in which, like, if the computing goes one way, then the whole society goes that way. And if the computing goes the other way, then it kind of forces the whole society in the other way. And now there's, there's all the political force and the sort of nation-state level power being applied to this question to make it go one way rather than the other way. But nonetheless, I think it is still sort of a live question. And, uh, and, and so there's, well, our analysis sort of has to not just be the, the computing system itself. And, and it can't also just be on the level of policy because policy is part of the system, right? It's like, oh, Apple should change its policy uh, to, to be more friendly to independent developers and, and power users. Well, okay, that's a nice thing to say, but they're not going to. Likewise, the government should change policy to make Apple do that. Well, they're not going to do that either because, you know, the, the whole nature of the system is kind of caught up in that, that vector right now. Um, and, and so, you know, the discussions of, of sort of different ways it could be are are inherently a little bit you're, you're talking about almost a total paradigm shift in society or 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 mounting a sort of not necessarily like it has to actually change the whole society but just like on the margin you're you're holding you're holding one version of society against a different version of society it's not just within tech um, and so i think you just really have to focus on these things with a very holistic perspective yeah i mean it's tough because I don't think that I don't think that we can give people a solution that you know gives total freedom that's appealing to no. the people the way Apple's product is. I mean, Apple at the end of the day is a very good product, right? Um, right. Maybe this is a mistake I'm making, but you know, I am I am kind of just aiming for well, what 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 can we do with Pluto? For you know, say there's only a hundred million people in the world who actually do care about tech freedom. Well, I want them to have good products, right? So, so that's kind of the way we're looking at it. Yes. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. I completely agree with that approach. Like, you know, maybe there's only 1% of people who are going to be able to reuse a real computer, right. but there should be real computers available for them. We're still in a situation where, you know, we can still connect to the internet and do whatever we want and send data to any other connect computer connected to the internet. We don't have to have a license to connect to the internet. We don't have a, I mean, you have, you have to have a license from Apple to go onto the app store, but you don't have to have a license to program, you know, a, a Raspberry Pi or, you know, a lot of these other, you know, a lot of, you know what we consider real computers right. so it's still a, it's still like there's still a lot we can do 
Um, but we need to be careful about it getting much worse too at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, f I find it interesting to go back and kind of review the history of this whole fight, um, you know, starting with Richard Stallman, basically. Um, so back at, in the beginning, the, the hackers, the people who, who kind of programmed the computers were just people in labs, in university labs and so on. And they just did whatever they wanted. There was no kind of property. There was no intellectual property law or commercialization involved. They did whatever they wanted. They built the thing and then they shared it with everyone else. And, and that was the model. And then there was the commercialization of software that happened in basically the 70s um, and the 80s. And, and then you get, you get these, this old guard, in particular Richard Stallman, reacting. Richard Stallman was, I think he was at the MIT lab at the time. I'm not quite sure. But, um, but he's reacting against this shift and he, he says, no, this is like, well, it, basically there, there, there comes to be these new restrictions on the freedom of the programmer and the freedom of the computer user where, no, you're not allowed to share, you're not allowed to see the source code. You're not allowed to share the source code with your friends. You're not allowed to change it because, you know, this, this piece of software is made by some company. The company has intellectual property rights. Their business model is caught up in, in restricting your ability to use the computer in the way that is natural for the computer to be used and in the way in which you are accustomed to using the computer. And, and so he, he sees this, Stallman sees this as this incredible imposition on the sort of what ought to be the free nature of computing. And so he starts this idea of free software. Well, I, need, I want software that's free. It's not encumbered by this nonsense. Um, you know, they, and they come up with the idea of, of free software. Later, that mutates into open source in the 90s. Um, but but it, so the interest and the, the, the claim with free software is, yes, you can see the source code. Yes, you can change the program. Yes, you can redistribute the program and modified versions of the program to your friends. And you are unencumbered in this manner. And, and so unfortunately, there's, there's this sort of conflict between the word free as in you can do those things and then free as in you also get the program for free. They tend to go together because it's very hard to commercialize software in the absence of copy control. But um, I mean, I would, I would say that might not be true, though. That might have been Stallman's big mistake. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that, right. So this is what I'm getting to is what are the big mistakes? Where, where, did, they, where did they get it wrong? Because I, I don't think their vision worked, right? It's like they, they had the right vision, which is we want to have the free computing uh, and free, free hackers. But, but they, they did not actually achieve that. They didn't achieve sort of an economic model that worked, and they didn't even achieve, and they didn't achieve um, the the free hacking, the, the free computing. So I'd be curious for your thoughts on on what they got right and wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not totally versed on all the history of this, so you know, I could be wrong about some of this, but you know, I, I my understanding is that um, Stallman is. You know, upset if you ever even use the word intellectual property. Right. Um, yeah, he thinks it's an oxymoron. Right, and I, I I think I disagree with that. If you spend a lot of time programming something, I mean, there is 
definitely a feeling, kind of a natural feeling of ownership. Right. I program this. Like, I want to get the credit that, you know, at, at the very least, I want to get the credit. Yeah. So, you know, I, what, what, at least I'll tell you what Futo is doing. And, it, it, and it's basically, we're focusing very much on the, the aspect of open source where, yes, we want people to know what their computers are doing. We don't want that yeah. hidden. Their computers should not be, like the computer in your pocket should not be doing things that, like, your 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 programmer nephew can't look at it and see what's going on. Um, doesn't mean you can't have, you know, licenses for um, people to run your software that you that you write, even if it's open. And you can, you know, I mean, with movies are basically open, right? Um, you, you can copy them easily and everything, and and and, and so, I mean, yeah. I guess I guess the bigger point is like. If you charge people to use your software, but it's open, you make piracy more possible, I think you'll still make a lot of money. Yeah, I, I agree with this. I mean, this has been something I've talked with my talked with uh, other other people in the field about um, that that maybe the that that last freedom that I listed, which is the freedom to just redistribute the software, actually isn't. Um, isn't necessary or, or is, is like the one that actually causes the problem. Yeah, he might have, yeah, he might have, he might have uh, gotten a little bit too, uh, too <laughs> right. communist. Right, and I mean, his solution was that like, software programmers should basically be employed by the state um, to do their thing, not, yeah. Oh, really? Okay, yes. Well, I see, I don't want, yeah, I, okay. That, I, I'm definitely not yeah, a, not, not a full free software philosophy. communist. Yeah. Um, um. <laughs> You know, I mean, and it's. I think it's very. I mean, I do know the history a little bit of you know Linus Torvalds coming around and like, bitch slapping, uh, Richard Stallman around. So that was uh, right um, with with Linux, and they they had a bit of a feud going there. Yeah, um, uh, largely about credit. <laughs> yeah, it was largely about credit, um, but it was also just about. Yeah, you know, I think Linus Torvalds might have erred a little bit on the terms of help. Like Linux is ba Linux is basically used by. You know, big companies now, and he's his salary is paid basically by big mm -hmm. big companies. Um, I look, he did a good product. Like Linux is actually one of our success stories in open source. It's it's a great product. Linux, yeah. You know, it does. It's not great for desktop, and you know, and when Android came along, they had to um, use only the, the the basically Linux kernel and and a few other low level systems. Yeah, I mean the entire. The entire sort of open source user land is yeah, it's very it's messy, messy, and there's like billions the of different licenses, and they go all the way from like you know the Stallman centric like GPL three or four or whatever they're on now, and then the FreeBSD yeah. license, which is what companies like Google like because then they can kind of turn anything that's open source, and you know there is a problem where where um, the big companies abuse the open source developers because you know th th they'll be yeah. commissioning all the stuff for open source developers to do and monetizing it and then you know the open source developer you know might not even get paid sometimes i think there's been some lawsuits where um, the open source developers mm -hmm. are like what what i did i you know I, I did this and i didn't even get any the money you promised me in a contract um so uh, there's a there's a there's a lot of nuance in all of this um but i, I kind of fundamentally futo believes that 
in order to uh, make the computers our tools that we own, we have to be able, as an individual, I own the computer and I can see the software on it. And you know, I understand that most people don't want to become programmers, but I want people to be able to have their nephew who is a great programmer program their devices and ask that, you know, or if they do what decide to right. become a programmer, and, they can. Yeah, in this, in, in this sort of amateur way where it's like, oh, I'm going to write this piece of software just for us. I'm not going to write this thing that has to go on the app right. store to even exactly. kind of have it touch our computers. Um, yeah, I mean, another comment on the open source free software thing is is maybe they kind of got the target wrong. Like they, it's focused on the software and not on the whole computing experience. And in the sense that like, oh, it is the software free. Um, it, it becomes this this sort of thing that you can you can kind of lawyer about and and like it, it kind of distracts you. Like if you have a, a, a user interface that, that is fundamentally kind of abusive to the user, but all the software is technically free, you know, is that is that actually something good? And, and the best example of this, I think, is, is a lot of web browsers. So Firefox, for example. Firefox is open source, theoretically. Um, does anyone ever actually read the source code? Not really. Um, does, is, the user, is the sort of user experience of the web actually a, a very free experience of the type that I think Stallman was trying to preserve? No, I don't think it is. And, and so maybe like... An, another kind of meme to put out there is instead of free software, you have free computing and in the sense that like your the experience, the total, the total experience of using the computer should be free in the sense that you're actually able to use the computer in, in these, in these ways. Now, I don't know what that entails, but, but like, that sounds like what you're getting at is, is like the, it's about the whole experience of using the computer. It's about what you can do with the computer. It's about what you can do with the whole software system. Um, and, and practically speaking, not just sort of... Yeah, I mean, we're using the word sovereign a lot with what we're doing. Like, do you mm -hmm. own the computer? Is everything it's doing under your right. control? Um, yeah, are you sovereign? Right, you know, so, so that's basically... Because, um, so that, exactly. So... One of the things that I think is needs to be done in the future of computing to really make this stuff work is new user interfaces because a lot of, and maybe new paradigms of how we think about things like apps, because a lot of the patterns that are actually the problem are built into our current paradigms of user interfaces and apps. Like even the idea of an app with a user interface, it's it's you know its primary interface is just pixels on a screen and its nature is this kind of black box and maybe you can go and look into the black box sometimes but it's it's mostly this black box you're not actually interacting with with computing data data structures or, or computations or anything like that you're interacting with pixels on the screen and uh, i i wonder i mean it's my contention basically that that we want a model that that maybe involves more end user programming, more actual computational agency by the user. But I, that's just my idea. I'm curious what you guys are up to or, or if you have thoughts on, on the, the kind of 
the larger problem of user interface as opposed to, or as a, as a sort of leverage point in this whole um, thing. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, this might not be what you're getting at, but I mean, I've been thinking a lot about when I stopped using Android Studio or, or, and the Android development tools, I thought about a lot about what the programmer experience is like. And I've been thinking a lot about how we could um, make it so that the user of an app can very quickly become a programmer of the app. Um, but I'm still thinking in terms of apps. Like, I don't know if we can get away of, I mean, maybe maybe um, maybe someone who's more creative than myself can think of a different paradigm than apps. But I mean, apps have been around since you know the 1970s in terms of just compartmentalizing you know different processes on on your computer. Well, process is a little different, um, than apps, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I, I think sure, sure. The way I would describe an app is is you're compartmentalizing parts of the user experience. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't thought about that a lot. I've been thinking, like I said, about kind of the, the experience, the user experience as a, of a programmer, I've been thinking about it a, a lot with kind of the programming tools right. I've been working on personally. Uh-huh. And, and what do you think are the big things to fix there? Um, I, I just want to fix the, I'm really focusing on complexity. We have tens of millions, maybe 100 million lines of code. If, if, if you install um, Xcode, if you want to, if you want to install Xcode and write an write an iOS app, you've got, you know, hundred million lines of code involved with that, and it probably only needs to it probably needs to be less than a million. So you could we could we could potentially be having you know, a hundred like ninety nine percent of our code just deleted, which would be wonderful. It would help everybody kind of uh, because it would make it much easier. It would lower the bar yes. for people who want to become programmers. There would be. You know, I, I, I don't know how much you program, but it's always, you know, a pain in the butt to, like, try to figure out some new library you need and yeah. how, how you're going to interact with it. And it's, but you only need one little thing that it does or something. Right. So, so that's what I'm focusing on is minimalism. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I'd be surprised if it was even 1%, um, uh, honestly. Like, this is, the situation is so out of control that, yeah. like, even a million lines of code sounds like a ridiculous amount of code. Uh, to me right uh, like yeah I, just based on my experience of like how big software projects are when when they're when they're, i mean a million lines of code is not that crazy it's like it's it's probably not less than a hundred thousand to to have like a, a a fairly complete computing experience but like you look at a ten thousand line project like like Lua Jet or something, and it's it's like they can do a lot in ten thousand lines. Right, right. So I, I agree. Probably you could make a cell phone if you just focused on minimalism and had some great programmers. I suspect you could make a phone operate a phone like a smartphone a, 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 a smartphone that does everything you want it to do on an average day. Yeah, it's it might not be as you know, it might not have crazy you know, animations or and stuff like that. Well, animations or, are actually know, pretty easy, things. right? Like it's, it's, it, it might not be, it might not be like everything. I don't even know what, what we gain for the complexity, to be honest. Like, well, I mean, you know, one of the things like if you want to have fixed, uh, fixed type uh, pixel fonts versus uh, true type fonts, yeah. you're going to have a hundred times more code 
uh, maybe a thousand times more yeah, code for, to for, do right, for, a, the, uh, for the font thing itself. A font, a font thing. So, so that's an example of something where if you wanted to just sacrifice and go back to go back to the old days uh -huh. uh, of simpler fonts, you could get rid of a lot of code. Maybe people don't want that, but there, there's certainly just a lot of nonsense in there. I mean, I give the example of uh, the, the 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 Android notification system, which had you know millions of lines of baggage that I didn't want that just had to go get compiled into our app. Uh huh. Yeah. Another aspect of this is um, you know just the 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 feedback cycle for being a programmer. You want that to be as right. quick as possible. You want to be able to make a change as quickly as possible. You want to be able to make a change uh -huh. and see the results of your change as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, so if you can get that down to uh, milliseconds instead of you know minutes, which is typically the case yeah. for a lot of things these days, I think you get a lot better software and you get a lot more people who enjoy programming. And again, this comes back to like how, uh, how can open source become better? Well, get more people programming. We have a lot of people in this world who could be programmers who aren't. Yeah, and and the interesting thing is, I think I think a lot of that barrier is is just the structural stuff, like the complexity, the the fact that you're really there's no obvious onboard like entrance to programming. Like you have a, let's say you have a tablet, right, or a, or an iPhone or something, and and like you casually have the thought one day that you want to get into programming. What what do you do? Well, you have to like buy a whole new computer. Like if all you had was an iPhone, you can't get into programming, even though it's a programmable computer. Um, and exactly, and it's like another thing they have that you can do. It's just kind of sad. Is you can just go into like a little sandbox where there's not much you can do. Right. Uh, you can go. You can do a mod for. Um, you can do a Roblox game or something like that. Right. Right. Um, or or the you know what is it like like the those websites that have a programming right. system built into the web browser. So if you do a if you do a Roblox game, if that's your first experience to programming, programming, you've actually got two layers of control there. You've got you're on top of iOS, and then you're on top of the Roblox company. So right. they're they're not really letting you program the computer. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. So there's the complexity problem. There's there's the problem of just whether you're even allowed to do it. Are there are there other aspects of the problem that you see, or, or particular projects that you've been sponsoring or working on that tackle parts of this problem? Yeah, I mean, I mean, another, which that's kind of what you talked to earlier, the hardware problem, I and mean, we, we we mentioned it too. Is just not, not even knowing how to program right. the hardware. That's yeah, a like big like you know, um, a, a Raspberry Pi like computer where there wasn't this sort of mystery blob of of lower level operating system under the operating system that you installed that that would be kind of cool <laughs> when i started um going down this path in um, 20 2015 and 2014 um i got a raspberry pi thinking it was the hackable computer it turns out it's not and it's it's you know yeah. it's a great it's 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 had a great success in in getting people more involved in programming but it doesn't it's very very opaque when you get to the gpu or the boot sequence um, so it's got 40 pins on the top that you can connect things to, and you can have all sorts of fun programming, whatever you can connect to those 40 pins. But in terms of what a Raspberry Pi does, which is everything that a smartphone does, it's got a great video player. It's got a great GPU for you know, 3D games. Mm -hmm. All those things are, are less um, 
hackable than an Intel uh, computer. Like you'd be, right. you'd have, you'd make more progress if, I would have made more progress if I just went, started with a NUC, with the Intel NUC as, instead of a Raspberry Pi for mm -hmm. really trying to learn how to program at the, at the bare metal level. What product is that, Intel? The Intel NUC, it's just a little, uh, Single board. It's it's just a it's a small computer you can get. Um, it's it's like a that, like a Raspberry Pi but Intel. Yeah, it's not it's not a single board computer oh, in the okay. sense that you can still like plug RAM and stuff into it. But it's it is the um, the CPU is soldered in, so it's it's kind of a single board computer. You can get one for a few hundred bucks, and it comes in a little case with an HDMI and. In USB ports. I see. It's a good way so to sort of if you want to set up a home server for something. Yeah, one of those little like desktop sort of mini computers. Right, right. I have one connected to my TV, and I use it for um, you know watching video and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what what can be done in the hardware arena, or what are you doing? Um, so the hardware arena is extremely expensive. Right. Um, so we are sponsoring a very cool project now with um, Casey, this, this guy named Casey Muratori, who actually oh, has on. a great yeah. talk. He has a great talk called the 30 million line problem, which yeah. you know, goes over a lot of what I talked about there. Um, he's, and basically the idea is there is like, can we make a simple architecture with just, um, he's very focused on uh, GPU um, yeah, well, aspects of computers. Yeah, well, so he wants to try to make the GPU work with general purpose um, processors, which would make the whole architecture much simpler. You would, you would have, if you did a manual for this computer, it would be 300 pages and instead of 3000 pages. Right, I mean, one of his things is, is the sort of, um... He says the GPU should have a well-documented instruction set architecture that's sort of a more normal way to program instead of this driver thing. Like the, right, right. Like the drivers are this very, you know, you're not programming the thing at all in, in some sense. You're, you're handing it source code at best and or just calling, calling into it. Um, and then it kind of handles everything for you as opposed to it being a computer that you're actually programming. Exactly. You're using, uh, you're programming to, a, I guess they're using the Vulkan API right. these days, which um, it's typically it's going to be a pre-compiled driver that's many yeah. megabytes provided by the maker right. of the uh, GPU. And then that gets translated into... Um, the instructions for the uh, hardware mm -hmm. and then there's further layers under the instruction set of the hardware like i think the instruction set is usually virtualized okay at least in nvidia's case from what i know um that that like there's a there's a whole vm of a virtual machine that runs on the actual hardware which okay. is di okay, different yeah. again yeah it's, it's it's a big mess it's a big mess right um, and, and so it's like, how, how can you make that more accessible to people so you don't have, you know, you don't have to be an expert in, you know, you can have fun programming. It should be fun to program. Lots of people used to have fun programming. Yeah, well, um, I mean, programming is actually an incredibly fun activity. It's, it's sort of, you know, you get to solve these little puzzles. You get to figure out what it is you actually want and you, you learn things and you build it and you, you feel good about yourself. And, and you get out of the end of it, you get exactly what you wanted. 
or or you know at least what you programmed <laughs> and uh it is this great activity and it's sort of a tragedy that it's become so difficult to get at it yeah um so it's like i said it's, it's expensive um again this is a problem too where there are crazy i mean this is where the economies of scale are just super insane the reason why we have such fast computers right. is because you know they were able to spend 10 billion dollars on a single fab somewhere in in you know taiwan um and they can mm -hmm. you know, but part of that and part of that is just centralizing everything and you know just fixing what you can do and and all that so um you know, even the Raspberry Pi, it's, it's, you know, that, that's a, you know, they're at the mercy of uh, Broadcom with Raspberry Pi. So whatever Broadcom gives them, yeah. Right, because they use the, they so, use the Like if Raspberry Pi couldn't just decide tomorrow, like, hey, like there's a very successful company and they, they sell, you know, tens of millions of units. They, they couldn't, they, they couldn't fix this problem. Right, right. Well, um, I mean, this has been a great overview of the problem and and kind of some of the, the the ways you're looking at it, the kinds of efforts you're interested in supporting with your project. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to cover here that, that you feel like we haven't gotten into? Um, I mean, I'm actually really excited that we got to talk about the low level issues. Um, you know, right. unfortunately, I mean, that's, yeah. I, as far as I can tell, that's where the issue is. But yeah, I'm so I'm right. always pushing for the low level here at Futo. Um, you know, and you know, I'm, I guess I'm running the show, so I get to push what I want. But you know, I also have to feed off the energy of other people. And so, yes, and let's totally. talk about. We, we should absolutely talk about some of the higher level stuff people are doing. Like we are, okay, we are yeah. trying to you know fix you know social media problems and all sorts of things. Um, so, and that's just like so fixing a higher level software, right? Yeah. So, what's gone wrong in social media, or like, how? Do, what? What? What does fixing that look like? I mean, to us, what we're thinking now is, you know, we really do feel like, um, you know, I, I, if you want to look at the kind of two most egregious examples of big tech messing up social media, I would, I would look at YouTube and Twitter, and both of them have near monopolies, and we have to be, you know we have to understand that all they did is they crowdsourced a bunch of content. That's all they did. Yeah. They, and sure. Yeah. They spent a lot of yeah, money. They, on, well, they built a, they built a platform on which they could crowdsource. Yeah. I mean, Twitter's honestly just, they didn't do hardly anything. At least YouTube spent a ton of money with their content delivery for the videos with, mm -hmm. with Twitter. They didn't even, they built some pretty yeah. bad software I mean, and crowdsourced content. So we really want to put the creators back in control. We want the creators to feel like they're, the way they felt it yeah. when you when you published a website in the late nineties, um, there were right. many many it's search engines. Yeah, it was your website, and there were many many search engines and indexers trying to find it, and they were desperately out competing, trying to trying to compete with each other to connect connect uh, users to your content, and they wouldn't think twice about censoring you if if it was making their users happy because they were so um, they were it was such a competitive marketplace. Right. Whereas nowadays the web is just Google. Right. Or, you know, if you're, if you're doing, if you're posting tweets, it's Twitter, right? Like, but it's, you know, there's other places where you can tweet to. There's other places you can post video, but they're just such a small market share mm -hmm. that it, it's not really mattering. 
um, yeah, well, YouTube it, can dictate really, everything, or Twitter. There's can the, again, there's these centralization effects in the network effect here, right? Like they, if one of these services can get control of the network effect and sort of herd everyone onto their platform, then they have this this incredible power, and it, it it's like sort of unfortunate that you you're not interacting with other people in the more natural sense of just you know either over the protocol or 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 whatever like the, the original thing with the web was you know you just put up a website it's on some server somewhere maybe it's just in your closet um and your computer is talking to other people's computers using the protocol and that's this very natural way at least we understand it because that's how humans talk to each other, right? It's like I talk to you in person, uh, even though we're not talking in person right now. We're going through all these third party things, which is kind of what's happened over time is everything has become abstracted and, and intermediated so that, it, you know, there's many other players in the loop between like, you know, me sending a message or saying something and you hearing it. And, and once there's all those players in the loop, then there's all this kind of centralization that can happen there and, and business models and so on and so they actually try to actively create that intermediation and and so you you know there's all these things like twitter where we're not just all posting to the open internet using a protocol where we're kind of posting to this centralized right. repository so yeah so we want to create whatever tools we can i mean we have some some kind of con concrete um ideas that we want to hire for but it's basically what can we do to make that protocol make get the creators to realize that they sh they should take control right we want the creators to be able to tell twitter that you you must syndicate this to other places who want to syndicate like this is my content you can't hoard it you can't stop other people from from scraping it twitter do, twitter does a tremendous amount of work to stop scraping right now right um, right they should stop yeah, doing I mean, that with... unless the creator wants them to do that for their content Right, and how do you how do you prevent them from scraping, or how do you oh, sorry how do you prevent them from from preventing the scraping? Because scraping is this very natural thing to do with with content that's delivered on your computer. Yeah, I, I think I think we 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 take a bottom up approach and we try to get the creators tools into the hands of the creators to make it easier for them to publish um, content to the ether or whatever you want to call it, and then like commodify Twitter. Yeah, commodified Twitter, exactly. So if you had one tool that could publish your tweet to uh, Minds.com, Twitter, uh, Gab, um, Truth Social, whatever, you know, Getter, right? That would um, at least be, a, you know, something to chip away at the power. Right? Like it's not, it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to beat Twitter overnight. At the end of the day, though, like this is all, we're all being crowdsourced. We have to like, convince convince the creators on Twitter to not be crowdsourced. We have to convince the people using their cell phones to not be crowdsourced in terms of, you know, their data and, you know, machine learning there. Uh, so what do you think? What do you think of um, protocols like Mastodon and um, so I haven't looked deeply into those. They all seem like they, they get a little bit too complicated. Mastodon um, seems to have some weird 
had some, like they wanted to basically. The, I think Mastodon might be a great example of people who like wanted to create an open open protocol, but they also wanted to control it as well as Twitter controls uh, things. Yeah, yeah. No, I see exactly what you mean. There, there is this tendency where the the kind of people who are into creating some of these open protocols right now are also the kind of people who are like, but not if it can be used yeah, and, by people I don't like. And 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 that's sort of an inherent Right, kind so of kind of all those people, I don't care about them. I'm not gonna even like look at their thing. Um, there's actually a cool one that we, we, we saw just a few weeks ago called Noster, N-O-S-T-E-R, um, which is very, which appealed to me on two, for the main reason it's just simple. It's it's just this is a this is like this is this is the JSON format for 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 posts and this is the relays this is the way you can relay posts to other people who want to index them. Um, so right. that's those sorts of things are things that we're really encouraging to happen. That sounds good. Simple. Yeah. Cool. Um, other than social media, one of the big aspects of the kind of high level problem that you see that that you know, needs, needs energy or, or encouragement in a different direction? Well, I mean, I think generally, um, you know, the decentralization is good for a lot of this stuff. Um, even, you know, I, honestly, we've had a lot of success. And when I say we, I mean alt, alternative tech has had a lot of success in um, real-time communication. Um, the Signal product is, is wonderful. Um, yeah, Signal's great. And it, and it, you know, it does encryption properly. Um, yeah, it, it seems like Moxie Marlon Spike, who's the creator of Signal, is is one of the sort of few people who's really thinking deeply and independently right. about this stuff. Right. But even Signal, I think we would like to see a more decentralized approach work. Yeah. At least. So that's where you. At least Moxie has a good, like, well argued sort of reasons for. Yeah, having built centralized projects many times. It's much easier. You're going to get a better product if it's centralized, um, but that doesn't mean that uh, this decentralized aspect isn't important and should be ignored. So there there should certainly be a good decentralized communications, um, real time communications. Even but even decentralized, we have some good progress with things like Matrix. Um, so you know whether or not that 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 turns out to be the, the you know the delightful product. It needs to be, or something else that's inspired by it. Um, you know, I think Futo wants to get involved there in terms of having a really good uh, real-time communications type uh, type product that exists. That's de that's decentralized and uh, sovereign, right? right. That, you know, so, so that that would mean that you could run it on your on your home in your home. If you got cut off in the from the internet. You would still be able to talk with your friends in your house, you know, if you lived in a big house right. or whatever. I mean, right? and that almost um, requires you're... that you're not actually using IP because the way IP has ended up is is um, everything has to go through kind of public IP addresses. Uh, I guess you could you could like you could use IP, but you you sort of use your local subnet or something. You would use IP, and then your 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 switch in your home would. Yeah. You know, has IP addresses for everybody on, that's connected to it. But uh, you know, another great example is just when governments decide to shut off their the internet for their country. It's very easy for them to shut off signal for everybody in their country. Right. Um, 
it's it would be harder for them to shut down um, something like Matrix or some or, or more a more decentralized approach. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's there's I one there's I mean there's so many so many great projects out there doing good work. I mean, Tor is another one mm -hmm. that's you know very very cool, right? Right, um, right. Well, um, I think we've we've had a great discussion. I think it's about time to wrap it up. If there's any final comments, we can get, go into that. Otherwise, um, it's been wonderful having you on the on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, you know, go to futo.org, and if you want to help us, we, I mean, we need lots of help. We need lots of great programmers to do this. It's going to take a lot of work. It should be fun, though. Uh, futo.org. We're doing the grant program, which is twenty thousand dollars to work on a project, no strings attached. Cool. Um, here in Austin. Lots of fun people to, lots of smart, fun people to talk to about your project and work on it with. Great. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm excited to see what you guys get up to and what comes out of it all. I, I think it's a super important problem, um, very much. I wouldn't quite say understudied, but it feels like, feels like it hasn't been figured out. Um, and so, just like more effort in the area will, you know, cause it to be figured out. Exactly. Exactly. We don't. We don't think we have any silver bullets here. Um, so, but, but maybe, maybe we'll, we'll make a, we'll chip away at something. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Um, it's been wonderful to have yeah. you. Thank you, Wolf. All right. Um, that's all for now. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, until next time.